0: I'd get waken up by roosters every morning, so it was definitely different from my life in upstate New York. I had to accept myself for who I was as opposed to the role that the typical Southern belle is supposed to take on. My neighbors literally have a Confederate flag hanging from their front door. My great-grandfather... Uh, was a sharecropper. My mom and my dad both instilled in me is that I couldn't be the obstacle to my own success. Uh, when I wrote to one of the publications, they said, oh, we don't know any black cosplayers. And I'm like, did you look? Literally the day after I quit, I found out that next day that I actually got um, accepted into the incubator. <laughs> we were able to work with Lovecraft Country, which was a show on HBO. I feel like I'm very over-mentored and underfunded. <laughs> like, and I feel like that's the story for a lot of Black founders, especially Black women founders.
1: What's up on Found Nation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for listening in to another episode of Founders Unfound. That was B Law, founder and CEO of QuirkTastic, a social video and networking platform where geeks and hobbyists can join fandom communities and create collaborative video. B is a former cytogenetic scientist turned entrepreneur, and QuirkTastic, with its two hundred thousand plus online followers has been featured in Essence Magazine, TechCrunch, and Forbes. Our episode is sponsored by Founders Live, a global platform built to inspire, educate, and entertain the modern entrepreneur. Be sure to visit founderslive.com or check for a link in the show notes. If you're a new listener to Founders Unfound, we've got something special for the black founders out there who are underestimated and under There's another way to get onto our podcast. Just leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, or Podchaser.com. If you do this and identify yourself as a Black founder, I will read your review in an upcoming episode. So make sure to plug your company, URL, and all the relevant handles. So why not? Podcast episodes live on and on. You're basically getting a free ad as a thank you for taking the time to give us a review and support our mission. So be sure to drop your review today. So, to that end... I want to give a shout-out and a big thank you to Jean-Q, who gave us five stars and wrote, There's something special about this podcast because, several times while listening, I have to pause, pull out my notepad, and take some serious notes. I'm not accustomed to doing this, but the insights shared on these episodes are literal gems. If you're in tech, this podcast is a must-listen. Glad to be a part of the Unfound Nation. Nab some dope merch, too! Thanks so much, Jean-Q. That was great, and hope you enjoy the merch. John Q's company is a new networking platform for entertainment professionals called Artiste Pro. Find out more at artistepro.com or Artiste Pro app on Instagram and Twitter. Artist is Artiste is A R T I S T E. Be sure to check it out. Now is your chance. Head over to Apple or Podchaser and drop us a review. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds. This is episode number 21 in our series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have B. Law, founder and CEO of Quirktastic, a social video and networking platform for geeks and hobbyists. Welcome to the show, B. We're super excited to have you. Thanks for making the time.
0: Thanks so much. I'm super excited to be here and talk with everybody.
1: <laughs> awesome. Terrific. So first, let's just maybe help the listeners understand what exactly is Quirktastic.
0: Yeah. So as you mentioned, it is a social video and live streaming uh, platform for geeks and gamers. And a lot of people also use it for networking. And I guess the best way to describe it is kind of to tell a little bit of why I started Uh, I myself am a huge nerd. I worked in science for a bit and I also am a very big anime fan. And I just remember wanting people to talk to about certain episodes or like certain fandoms that I like. So Quirktastic and platform Quirk Chat actually allows people to find new fans to talk to about their favorite fandoms.
1: I love it. This is going to be fun to, to dive into because it's a world that I don't know that well. Uh, I totally get it, though. So, But before we go into the company and sort of its story, let's hear a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? Where are you from?
0: Yeah, so I grew up in between Rochester, New York and Charlotte, North Carolina. I'd say I spent a lot of my uh, developmental years in the South, so Charlotte, North Carolina.
1: Nice. Um, so you're a southern Southerner?
0: I guess I am. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I went even when I tell people like, Oh, yeah, I'm from Rochester, New York. They're just like, Oh, that's not New York. You're basically from Canada. because It's like 45 <laughs> minutes outside of Canada. But I guess when it comes to what I've learned and how I've lived my life, I've definitely been a southerner.
1: Do you remember when you made that transition when you made that move from Rochester to North Carolina?
0: Yes, I do, because it was a lot of culture shock. Like, I, um, my mom's side of the family is actually from North Carolina, which is why we moved down here. And I just remember people um, just laughing at the way that I talked. We were, Charlotte nowadays is very, um, like, Metropolitan compared to what it used to be when I first moved here. Sure. However, we lived in like the suburban or earth- the area, so like Matthews, North Carolina. And like I grew up next to a farm. <laughs> like I'd get woken up by roosters uh, every morning. So it was definitely different from my life in upstate New York.
1: <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, that's a pretty big difference. You don't really have a strong southern accent.
0: Yeah, I I guess not. (laughs) Yeah, I was gonna say, does it ever come out? Uh, I say y'all every now and again, but I think I have a pretty neutral accent.
1: And did you go to high school in North Carolina? Yes, I did.
0: Yeah, I even went to college uh, in North Carolina, UNC Charlotte, if anybody's familiar.
1: Nice. What was it like? I mean, I'm not from the South, and I've spent some time there, but I don't really uh, know it intimately. What's it like to grow up in Charlotte, North Carolina area?
0: Oh, yeah. How do I describe it? So I've actually lived on the West Coast, which I believe that's where you're from. I lived in the Bay Area, as well as LA recently. And... I think one thing that I noticed living out there compared to the South is just, it's definitely more liberal on the West Coast compared to the South, where it's just very conservative. And I think, I don't know, being in a place that's just very conservative, and I also grew up Christian, I think if you're someone who's eclectic, like I was told that I was, or even something as simple seemingly today as liking anime, it was not very much so received well from including my family. So I, I think There was just, I don't know, I I feel like I had to learn how to accept myself for who I was, as opposed to the role that, I guess, the typical Southern belle is supposed to take on, and then adding on being Black in the South, um, in the South of the United States there's the history that goes there, especially with North Carolina. If you look back on just Jim Crow in general, that's where a lot of things took place. So you have your growing up years and then that shadow of like America's dark past just looming over everything that you do. And for me, like I'm definitely a, um, a person that just takes responsibility for my future and doesn't like to make a lot of excuses for the things that happen in my life. But I Living in the South, especially North Carolina, you can definitely see how, I don't know, you can kind of get a little mad at just the history that we've had here. And I, I don't know if that's like where you wanted this conversation to go for sure, but I think it's just something that's unavoidable. And especially with us going into this election, when I was in on the West Coast, I'd hear people say like, oh, like voting a certain way. And it was just like, very much so. Everyone knew who they were voting for, To whereas in the South, it was probably the exact opposite, <laughs> without me going into too much detail.
1: <laughs> yeah, and no, I can see that. So this idea of the history and the legacy that you're talking about, is that something that you felt when you were growing up? Was it very present to you or something that, that you were reminded of on a regular basis?
0: Absolutely. Even today, I mean, even if you're not from the South, you've probably heard of the Confederate flag. Like when people are like, oh, like you probably shouldn't wave that around. It's oh, like my neighbors literally have a Confederate flag hanging from their front door, you know? So it's something that you couldn't really avoid. And then um, also with me being black and also like a light-skinned black woman, there are just a lot of different ways that you're reminded of the the history for sure.
1: How did your parents help you get through that? I mean, is there something about what they Instilled in you or helped you to sort of persevere through that, or was it just sort of fend for yourself? And that's the reality of where we have to be.
0: So, I would say a lot of my family actually is from the south. Uh, My dad's side of the family is from Alabama, and my great grandfather uh, was a sharecropper. And just knowing that history and like having the people who at the time were like not too far gone knowing just the history of what happened even my ancestors that lived in the 1800s having to go through um, our dark past it's something that you're kind of grown up with but I think the fact that my family just talked so much about perseverance it wasn't something that I ever thought was going to hold me back. Um, one thing that I think my mom and my dad both instilled in me is that I couldn't be the obstacle to my own success. You know, it's like, all right, these are the, the cards I was dealt. I am a black woman. Society is this certain way, but I couldn't let those things stop me because they were facts. These are things that are not going to change, but the only thing that I could change is what I could control, which was the way that I saw it or the things that I decided to fight for or the values that I have.
1: I love that. That's pretty profound. Don't get in your own way. That's we we can all learn from that for sure. So tell me about anime. How does somebody get exposed to that and sort of become somebody who's a fan of that?
0: Oh, man, let's see. Let's go back to the old days. I was a part of the anime era where you really did have to search for it. I was at, like, the beginning of the Toonami phase, so that was, of course, my first exposure. Everybody loves Dragon Ball Z if you're an anime fan. I think that was, like, a lot of people's first ones. One of my first ones was Naruto, but then, of course, you had, like, the Yu-Gi-Oh and things like that that people don't really consider as anime. But it was, like, that first of, like, oh, this is not... I don't know what the cartoons were. This is not something on Nickelodeon. Like, what is this thing? And I didn't have any friends who were also into it. Like, the hobbies that my friends liked were basically just music-based. Little Romeo or Little Bow. It was just like, that's what you're supposed to like, you know? <laughs> so, so then I'm over here and I'm just like, oh, but like this, you know, have you seen this Japanese cartoon? Like, this kind of is cool. Like, they had a cool episode last night. I also grew up during the the age of where you had to use things like LimeWire to basically, uh, you know, get stuff. I don't want to call myself out on anything, you know, illegal. But we had to do what we had to do back then. And uh, (laughs) though eventually I did, maybe in high school, I found my group of people, though they were all like white and Asian people who just liked anime. I'm pretty sure I was the only Black person girl or boy who liked it in that group but I didn't care I was like they're teaching me that I can go to Barnes and Noble and go to the manga section and get my manga fix if I want to they're teaching me how to use LimeWire to to basically get this anime that's only available in Japan and only has Japanese subtitles but you can use this other reference site to like basically understand what they're saying just something about that camaraderie of like oh we both like this thing that not too many other people like. We should hang out. Like, this is kind of cool. And that I think was my first bit of like, Oh, I I like this.
1: That's cool. I, uh, I, I see that, you know, it's sort of a different tribe almost. Right. And you have a unique background inside of that tribe even. So I can totally see how it was a place where you could find sort of camaraderie, as you said, and this bonding around the content. And because it's so unique, You know, it sounds like that's something that you gravitated towards.
0: Yeah. And I don't know how much of it me like, oh, I want to be. Different as opposed to like oh I just think that this is really cool and I don't know I'm trying to think of like what type of teenager or preteen was I so I I do know that I didn't particularly want to rebel but I think when my family found out that I like things that were a little bit different than what they like that definitely I don't know, it caused some teasing it caused a little a bit of like oh you're kind of weird what are you doing because not only did I like anime but I liked alternative music and metal rock music. <laughs> And my sweet, black, southern Christian mom was like, no, this is not <laughs> it. Absolutely not. So, but it just drove me even closer to just figuring out what else was out there.
1: I mean, I, that's a great story. I mean, I think that's, you know, sometimes we have this sense of like, can I double down on what people expect or can I just be myself and find what's interesting to me and wherever that takes me, it takes me.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So you went to school, you went to college in North Carolina as well. And so what did you study there?
0: I actually studied and graduated uh, with a biology degree. And up until actually like a few years after I graduated college, my goal was to be pediatric gastroenterologist. And I know that sounds like what? A doctor. (laughs) Why so specific? Yeah, I wanted to be a doctor. It, It was something that i have apparently just always wanted to do. I really liked I liked math. I really liked knowing how the body worked. It's literally you. When you think of physiology, it's literally who you are as a person. When you think of genetics, it's who you are. And something about that has always been fascinating to me. So I graduated with a degree in biology and my whole goal was to go to, uh, to medical school. I even took the MCAT and did well on it. <laughs> so I know we'll get to that Later, like what happened there, but yep, that's what I did, and a minor in Spanish, if that's important.
1: (laughs) Wow, minor in Spanish, yeah, that's interesting. Why why specifically the special specialty that you mentioned, pediatric gastro and? I can't even say it.
0: Yeah, pediatric gastroenterology. uh, The reason that I did is because when I was in high school, I started a nonprofit for children with autism. So with that, it started off because I I saw this girl on the bus getting bullied. And I usually didn't take the bus because at that point, like I started driving when I was as soon as I could drive at that point. I think like 15, 16. And I remember, um, I think my car was in the shop or something like that. So I had to take the bus and when I went on the bus there was this girl uh, who I knew had autism on top of like a few other disabilities and she just was getting bullied so badly and I was like why like do people not know that like she has these disabilities like why are people doing this to her? And I was like, well, if people knew more about what she had, they probably wouldn't see her as weird. So I started off just sitting with her at lunch. I'll be your friend. I wasn't really like popular or anything, but I was just seen as like, I guess, what you would consider a normal person. And I wanted people to also see her as a normal person. So I just sat with her at lunch. And then from there, it kind of grew into a, what would you call it, like a lunch buddy program. And we did it at a few different high schools and middle schools throughout the area. And that turned into a day camp that we would hold during the summer for uh, children with autism. And just that was was really cool. But one thing that I noticed just talking to different parents through that experience was that a lot of their children had gastrointestinal issues. A lot of them had Crohn's disease or couldn't have casein and gluten and all these things. And I knew that I also had a few digestive issues. And it was just something where I was like, oh, like, I, I just want to be the one who does the research on this. So... I uh, went to undergrad with that objective, but then I ended up actually working in cytogenetics, which is uh, cytogenetics is basically chromosomes. So looking into chromosome abnormalities, which also ties into special needs. So I was the one who would be in the lab and get like the specimens of blood and basically uh, culture the cells to see if there were any uh, chromosome abnormalities. I don't know if you remember in like your biology textbook, but there would be a picture of all of your chromosomes laid out. It's called a karyotype. Sure. But I would basically I remember it. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It's okay. If you don't, it's fine. (laughs) But I would be the one who would actually put together those karyotypes of all of your chromosomes, and then I would go through and see if any of them were abnormal. Uh it kind of just went into that.
1: (laughs) Well, this is quite a story.
0: Yes, I know it.
1: We're gonna have to dig into how somebody with such a profound empathy and mission and sort of goal, singularly visioned, turns into an entrepreneur working on something totally different. But in the meantime, we're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back with
2: B-Law from Quirktastic. Hey everyone, this is Nick Hughes, founder and CEO of Founders Live. We are the global venue for modern entrepreneurs where we inspire, educate, and entertain entrepreneurs through our global online platform, The community where you can find various aspects of education, help, and inspiration to make you a better entrepreneur, as well as our fun pitch competitions that are virtual and in person when possible, where we highlight emerging talent from all corners of the world. Join us to help with our pursuit of entrepreneurial equality, which says no matter what you look like, where you are born, how you identify, gender, or orientation, Everyone deserves equal opportunity for success and wealth creation. So find our membership options at founderslive.com.
1: So we're back with B. Law from QuirkTastic. So B., we were just getting into how you had this mission for our passion around helping people. And it's an incredible story around movement that you created around just this one catalyzing event of uh, wanting to protect or or ally somebody who was being bullied. And tell us more about how and when you decided that med school and that mission ultimately wasn't the choice. Or was there an event or a time when you said, yeah, I'm going to do something different?
0: Oh, yeah. And I don't know, it's, it's so crazy to think back to my days of like, I built out this 501c3 nonprofit. And I kind of, I don't know, I guess I don't really recognize it too much whenever I tell my stories. Like, it's usually not something that I bring up. I, I think I'm typically super focused on Quirktastic and kind of see them as like two different lives. But there is definitely a bridge and a turning point of like when I went um, full Quirktastic. I was applying to medical school, took the MCAT, did fine on the MCAT. And uh, during the process of applying to medical school, it typically takes several months to like almost like a full school year to get accepted into uh, medical school. And I remember that you needed a committee letter for the, the schools that I was applying to. And it was a like super expensive process to apply to medical school one. But then you needed your professors as well as any doctors that you shadowed and a few other people to kind of all get together and write one packet letter. And I remember I shadowed this awesome cardiologist, very well-renowned, but was not very technological. And for some reason, his piece did not come to the letter, which delayed my whole application several months. Oh, my. And Yes. And as we know, medical school is very competitive. I ended up getting waitlisted at most of the schools that I applied to and didn't get in. So I was like, okay, well, I have to take a whole nother year to figure out what I'm going to do. I was in the process of reapplying and there are two steps. Like you have like a primary application and then each school sends you like a secondary application if you've passed through the first part. So I sent in my primary applications and this is when I actually started a blog. And this blog was more of a lifestyle blog of just, I was like, I need something to do. I was like, I have a whole nother year that I'm not going to be in medical school. Like I am working in the lab. Let me just start a blog. It was the thing to do back in what was it like 2014 or something like that I think was when I started the blog so I ended up doing that and really liked it I liked the community of blogging I've always really liked writing but I think it was something that I kind of suppressed because I was like oh I'm gonna be a doctor and my mom was like you're gonna be the doctor in the family you know how parents <laughs> oh, no. can be so Not too much pressure. Right. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna be the doctor. Like, screw that I also like writing, like full force, like MD. (laughs) Oh boy. Yeah. But then when I took that year off, I was like, well, what else do I like to do? I like to write. I made this blog and it actually ended up getting pretty popular. And from there, I was able to actually monetize the blog. I was part of a few different blogger networks there is one very popular one called mode that is no longer around because they went bankrupt i remember that yes oh my gosh so even with that i think that was when i was like okay maybe blogging isn't it maybe i need to figure out a way to make money for myself because mode owed me money
1: oh no Uh,
0: yeah oh my god i remember when that whole thing went down like the way that it went down was um it was very just sudden It was like one day they were there and then the next day I tried logging into my network to see the opportunities and like also to see when I was going to get paid and it was not there. So I like, of course, go online and I'm talking to all the other popular bloggers at the time going on their Facebook page and just like, yo like what's going on? And then the next day we get a message that's like, well, we're gone, like we're bankrupt. We told our employees the same day that you all found out, like, it's done. Like, after that moment, I just remember thinking, like, oh, I need to do something else. And this was, like, a few years in the game, so.
1: I'm surprised that that didn't sort of jade you or tell you to run back to being a doctor or something, that the internet is this, uh, you know, wild west that you can't trust.
0: Yeah, you would think so. But actually, I still kind of saw it as, like, a... It was like a side hustle. Like I've always had it in my mind that I could be more than one thing. So in my mind, even though medical school, especially like your first few years are very hard. But for some reason in my mind, I was like, I could be this cool blogger who travels and stuff, but also is in medical school. And is also this amazing doctor. So I was like, I was going full force with both of them. And of course, burnt myself out trying to even think about both. (laughs) but i remember the moment that i decided to kind of take quirktastic full speed so after blogging i kind of got tired of blogging cuz i wasn't really focused on like who my audience was though i ended up posting a few blog posts i remember my first blog post that got a lot of traction was a post about cosplayers and it was like 200 black cosplayers that you should know And the reason that I wrote this post is because a lot of the other publications at the time would post all of these awesome posts about cosplayers that are killing it and there would not be anybody of color, like not just like a black one, but like Latin or barely even any Asian, which is like, hello, Japan. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) so it was like, oh, no, like uh, when I wrote to one of the publications, they said, oh, we don't know any black cosplayers. And I'm like, did you what? So <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a post kind of in spite of like 200 cosplayers of color that you should know. And I did a list posting to all of their, um, I think most of them were on Facebook at the time. And from there, uh, the blog post took off. I think it reached, it helped my overall blog reached over half a million page views in a month for several
1: months. Wow.
0: Yes. So I was like, oh wow, there's community and people actually want to like have this type of content, which was great.
1: <laughs> and for those who don't know, what is a cosplayer?
0: Yes. Oh thank you for thank you for that. So a cosplayer is it's basically like costume play. It's where you dress up as your favorite character. Typically I know for Halloween people dress up as their Favorite character or something silly, um, it's when people dress up not on Halloween, and there are like lots of conventions. So if you dress up as your favorite anime characters, such as Naruto, or if you dress up even Marvel characters, like you'll see people dress up as Spider-Man or Wonder Woman, they're technically in cosplay.
1: That makes sense. And like you said, there's usually gatherings or events or conferences that people showcase some of this.
0: Absolutely, there. If you live anywhere in the U.S. and also abroad, your city most likely has a comic or anime convention. Uh, one of the largest ones being San Diego Comic Con, which has recently changed their name to Comic Con International. These events attract a lot of people. Like Comic Con International attracts well over a hundred thousand people for like a three to four day event, and most of these attract thousands of people. And all of your favorite voice actors or actors in general are typically at these events.
1: Nice. So that you so you do this blog post and you get this aha, like, oh my goodness, there's people out here that really are attracted to this. Either they want to know more about it or they want to identify with it.
0: Yeah. So um, with that, also while I was blogging, because I told you I wanted to do it all, this is when I was working in cytogenetics. So I would literally be um, either... In a lab or behind a microscope for 10 to 13 hours a day and then I would come back home at like one o'clock in the morning and work on my blog and just like do that over and over and over. I guess kind of getting to the point of where I decided to go from this blog to Quirktastic and then from doing Quirktastic part-time to full-time, it was because I found my community online and I was like oh, okay after I wrote this post and I wrote a few other posts that were also highlighting different cosplayers and anime and stuff like that, I kind of found my tribe of people online. So I commune with them, but then on finding people in like Facebook groups and subreddits and things like that, I also found a whole bunch of bullying and harassment online, especially for women and uh, women of color. For people of color in general, it was like you would post a photo of you dressed up As whatever character so the cosplay we were talking about, and someone would come up and say, "Oh, you can't cosplay that person. You're black. This person, like, it's not canon, which is like, oh, it's not true to the the series." And it's like, what? (laughs) Like, why? Like, this is supposed to be a hobby. We're supposed to be enjoying the community and having fun. Yeah. And you would have so many people that would just, and I'm I'm being very light by thinking, "Oh, you shouldn't cosplay." It's like be like very horrible language of just downing people and straight up harassing them anytime that they posted anything just because they didn't look like the character or you didn't believe that someone like them actually liked anime or gaming or whatever else it was especially with women you would have of course a lot of guys would be like oh you can't be into gaming or you can't be into anime your boyfriend must be into it. Or like, if you really like it, name these characters and tell me what happened on episode number 17. <laughs> it's like,
1: oh my gosh. why?
0: Yeah, oh yeah. For what reason? That's kind of what my thought was. So from there, I decided to quit uh, the blog that I was doing. And that was when I came up with the idea of Quirktastic, which at the time focused on uh, people of color who liked fandom. And um, that was like the very first version. And then, it was more of like focusing on people who typically were underrepresented in fandom. So people of color, women, and then also the LGBT community, which are three groups that we still very much so advocate for in Quirk Chat, which is our newest platform. And from there, I was like, this is it. <laughs> like, these are the people that are my people. And I want to figure out the best way to advocate for this community. So that was the start.
1: And. Was there like a day when you said, I'm leaving my job and I'm going to go do this full time?
0: Oh, yes, there definitely was. <laughs> I yeah, there just came a point and I'm sure other people can relate there. There were a few different things that happened. There was like a bit of cognitive dissonance because I was working in the lab, uh, working my my butt off a lot in the lab. And then I'd come home and do this thing that I was definitely more passionate about. And I was like, oh, like, I'd go from this, like, super joy then to being in a room with no windows. And it's just like, oh, God, I'm just aliquoting media every day for 13 hours and looking through this microscope. And I enjoyed, actually, like, the work wasn't hard at all. Um, and I actually would have probably stayed longer had I actually liked the people I was working with. And I think that people definitely make the job. Because uh, my breaking point was there's one person and you know who you are. (laughs) But he tampered with the the cells that I cultured. So I had to, and I won't go into too much detail because this is not a science podcast. However, he basically, out of spite towards me, messed up my clients' results. No way. Yeah, I was like, people have drawn blood and paid money for these tests. And he had marked them all as like unreadable so we had to go out and get the patients to take more samples. And this was like, not just one or two patients, it was like a few patients. And then to find out that my um, the person who was my manager went back and were like, who marked these as wrong? Like they were all correct. We basically took these steps for no reason. And I was like, wow. I already, and I already kind of had a problem with this person, but it was like, it was more of a moral thing. It was like, if somebody's willing to do that, out of spite, like, I was like, I do not want to be around this at all. So it was the combination of me, like, not really getting along with a few certain people at work to, like, that incident, and then to just basically having this other thing that I really enjoyed, really enjoyed the people in the industry. And there was one day where I was in, um, I was in the hood, which is uh, where you kind of culture yourselves and all of that. And I was listening to a podcast about this woman quitting her job. And then I listened to another podcast actually about an incubator by Catherine Finney called Digital Undivided. And I was like, oh, like, I don't know if Quirktastic qualifies for this. I don't know if we're ready. I don't even know what venture capital is at this point. I was like, maybe I'll just apply and see what happens so I applied for it and I actually quit the day before I got accepted into the program. But that was like when I was like, all right, well, I'm in. Let's see what this is about.
1: Wow. So you quit first and then you found out.
0: Literally the day after I quit or like when I put in my notice, I found out that next day that I actually got um, accepted into the incubator. <laughs>
1: wow. Wow. that's
0: <laughs> Yeah, crazy. So either way, I was out of there. But thankfully, the universe had my back, too. <laughs>
1: So tell us, let's fast forward a little bit. Let, tell us more about Quirktastic as it is today. Like what are the elements? What's what's the parts of the offering? What's the community like?
0: Yeah, so uh, Quirktastic has definitely had a few different evolutions, but I think we most recently, I don't know if we'll get into accelerators at any point, but we uh, did, We Funder had an, a program called XX. So they had an XX fund that was for women. And that was like my first chunk of money that I got to where I could actually build something and have people um, help me uh, with the platform. So my goal there was just like, let's see what people want. I had already built an audience or just like a very small audience, thankfully, because of uh, the blog that I had beforehand. So I had people that could test it. And I really just, uh, after the incubator, I learned how to do customer discovery. So I really just asked the audience, like, what do you all want? Like, what would you like to see? And they're just like, we just want to make friends. That's all. I just want someone that I can talk to about anime. So where we're at now with Quirk Chat is we are creating a social video platform to where you can basically just create response videos rapidly within 15 seconds. So it's a short media that people can basically create together. So you can join live discussions and repost them on other platforms. Uh, We also have like the live streaming aspect. So you can do group live streaming pod videos. For example, a lot of people use the platform Twitch because they want to live stream video. There's a small group of people on Twitch who are not doing video. They're just on there talking to people. This is great. That's also what you see on Instagram stories. But I believe on Instagram stories, you can only have one other person on the platform. To so whereas with us, we kind of took that basics of like, all right, talking to people, and we shape that into pod chats, which allows you to um, basically have pod like group videos with uh, random people or people that you already know. So the way that we've seen people use it is we have a few people that have a podcast. And in addition to their podcast, the four of them will get on and basically create content that other people can watch on the platform. Though what we're kind of shifting it to is doing pod chat invitations to whereas you can kind of create just random interactions with people through an invitation. You'll probably see a prompt of like, hey, we see that you like anime. There's a pod chat coming up about what anime are you watching? Do you want to join this pod chat? So, you can, if you accept the invitation, you'll be added to a pod chat with three other random people, and you all can all talk and hopefully become friends from that.
1: So, it's kind of part content, part community interaction. And kind of social all in in sort of one interface, which I guess is there's a mobile app is sort of the core.
0: That's exactly it. And the reason that uh, we kind of decided to do this like one stop shop approach is that I think that's kind of how fandom is. Like if you think of the reason that we have comic conventions, it's because one, we want to see other people who are into the same things that we're into. But also it's like we want it all and to kind of be submerged into another world (laughs) is kind of what it's like. But I think everything that we've done is kind of just based on that one principle of like, we just want to talk geek with other people. Like that's literally if you go to like the basis of anything that Quirktastic creates, as well as like just fandom in general, it's like, we just want to talk geek with other people. That's literally like the, the main thing. So we've created, and the first feature that I was talking about is called Quips. Members can create 15 second collaborative video responses to user-generated topics, to voice their opinions, and that you can combine up to four responses to share on other platforms. A use case example, if I wanted to give my opinion on why K-pop is better than, I don't know, country music, I I could say. (laughs) It's like super random, but like say that I wanted to just argue. Like I was in the mood of just like, this is what I feel. It's like, have you heard of BTS? Have you heard of Blackpink? They are so much better than Gavin DeGraw or whatever. So I give my 15 second take and then several other users could come and kind of add their voice to that original piece. That's basic thing. We just want to talk geek with other people.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love that talk geek with other people. And there's, there's a certain element there of the community as a movement almost, right? These Of people and communities and voices and conversations that need a place to gather, need a place to, you know, sort of coalesce and feel safe and ability to express themselves. And so it makes a lot of sense for sure.
0: Yeah. At first, I think Quirktastic's goal was to be that community, but it's like, oh, like, we're trying to be too much. Like we're trying to be there for the people who like anime, gaming, K-pop, the general weirdos, like the free spirits, all of that. I think that was like the first version of Quirkastic, But now we're really focused on giving other community builders a chance to basically find and basically cultivate their own communities. So We've actually worked with a few different comic conventions who are building their communities through Quirk Chat, as well as different um, organizers like people who would typically have Facebook pages are using Quirk Chat to kind of find their people because we also have an aspect that we're adding that's basically a channel chat that allows you to build your audience and kind of talk to them and give them that sense of camaraderie. So yeah, it's, it's all about community.
1: Pretty easy to see the power of this platform for sure. So we're gonna take another short break and we'll be right back with B-Law from Quirktastic.
2: Hey everyone, this is Nick Hughes, founder and CEO of Founders Live. We are the global venue for modern entrepreneurs where we inspire, educate, and entertain entrepreneurs through our global online platform, the community where you can find various aspects of education, help, and inspiration to make you a better entrepreneur, as well as our fun pitch competitions That are virtual and in-person when possible, where we highlight emerging talent from all corners of the world. Join us to help with our pursuit of entrepreneurial equality, which says no matter what you look like, where you are born, how you identify gender or orientation, everyone deserves equal opportunity for success and wealth creation. So find our membership options at founderslive.com.
1: So we're back with B-Law from Quirktastic. So B, tell us a little bit about how does this become a business? How do you decide to figure out how to make money or is there a business model around this?
0: Yeah, so I don't know when people will be listening to this podcast, but for anyone listening in the future, this is smack dab in the middle of COVID-19 2020. So with that, uh, we've had a few different business models, but more recently we've had to change our business model which started off as frustrating, but actually is probably for the best. So before COVID-19, there were two main ways that we were making money. We had an e-commerce shop kind of just to sustain us because I was like, oh, like we're not at a point where we're raising funds right now. And I don't want to just slap on a whole bunch of ads for the community or really try to monetize something to where we're not really sure what it's going to be yet but one thing that i know that nerds like because i am one is we like stuff like we like shirts we like uh things that are fandom based so uh we started off with just the quirk shop kind of to sustain ourselves and it actually ended up growing pretty pretty large like we uh were actually a part of Macy's female uh showcase back in Quarter four of 2019 into quarter one of 2020 up until coronavirus, uh, but and and that was that was really cool. So that was one way that we were monetizing. So
1: selling merch essentially.
0: Yeah, t-shirts, uh, crew necks, pillows, things like that. That was just apparel. And then the other way that we were making money at the beginning of 2020 before. The whole world got shut down was we were basically monetizing through conventions. One way was through partnerships, but the main way uh, we built out a ticketing platform through our app called Connie for convention, Connie convention. And the way that we were thinking was like, well, we want to take an action that people are already used to taking and basically just amplify it and make it easier. So what a lot of people in our community were already doing was going to conventions and not just one we would typically go to i think the number when we did the research was most people go to about four different conventions so where on like the higher end you have some people that go to two conventions each month which is like 24 conventions wow yeah i don't know how they do it but that's definitely not me but uh the median number that we found was about four uh, conventions per year and with that uh convention tickets they're typically either like around $50 or A few hundred dollars and we were working alongside the event organizers and seeing like what they needed and we put that into our platform that they wanted to reach our audience because it was so diverse or it is so diverse most of our users are actually women which a lot of event organizers are like we want more women at our event obviously so yeah so we built a way to where you can buy all of your tickets through our platform and that did well for like a few weeks until South by Southwest was canceled. And then we were like, oh, if South by Southwest got canceled, everything is getting canceled this year. And um, yeah, so South by Southwest being the largest what tech conference, I think, in North America. I don't know if it's beyond that, but it's very big. That was the indication for us of like, we need to change. how We monetize because we're still too new for us to really just. Like we weren't like an event bright or something like that. Like we had not, we didn't have any skin in the game at this point. So where we're at now is just micro tra- uh, transactions through the app where you are able to uh, tip different uh, pod chatters and quips through the app, as well as um, a subscription that we're still coming up with pricing with. So in a sense, it's kind of like starting over, which is at first discouraging because it's like we were just about to raise like a larger amount, but now. We've kind of been knocked back down to like almost pre-seed to seed level.
1: It sounds like you have a pretty uh, good plan though. And how do you measure like your success metrics right now? Is it around engagement or number of users or app downloads or, or content created? How are you thinking about measuring the growth of the business?
0: Yeah, so where we were at um beforehand is monthly active users, as well as how many times people open the app and how long they were on the app. And our, our numbers were pretty solid. Currently we're at about like twenty five, twenty-eight thousand monthly active users. And they open the app about seven times a day, which was really cool. And they spend about seventy-eight minutes on the app each day, which when I first saw that I was like, Oh wow, like that's like, are we sure this is right? But then I think about (laughs) that. When I think about how often I I open Instagram, I'm like, Oh, yeah, I can see that I open Instagram, like, I'm not even gonna say how much I open Instagram. (laughs) So I was like, all right, this is really great.
1: That is pretty good. By the way. I mean, I think a lot of apps would kill for 78 minutes a day.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah. And it's, I think that's so I don't know, it's really cool. And when I've talked to investors about it, they're just like, Oh, like, you should just push out on like, basically just getting more users like you already have the platform like let's just go forward with that but we have thankfully uh, we're really close with our audience which is good I, I know another company that does really good um, customer feedback is discord and we kind of are on that same vein of just like let's listen to what the audience wants the the community wants and there are a few key um, features that they're looking for just a few different tweaks before we really go out with just acquiring new users. Though we have like really good, like our CAC is pretty good, or I guess like user acquisition cost. Whenever we've done any type of ad, like on Facebook, it's only been like 23 cents cost per install. So I think because we are kind of on the niche side of things, it's like, once you see it, it's like, oh, I've been waiting for this. Like I'm definitely gonna download it and at least check it out.
1: That makes complete sense to me. I mean, yeah, I think that's one of the beauties of the internet in general is this ability to have people find their, you know, sort of place where they feel comfortable and connected. And it's not limited by where you are physically or where you can get to. So it makes complete sense. And especially now that COVID's here and people won't have as much opportunity to assemble, you know, at least in the short term, right? In some of these conferences and events, they're gonna seek out, this kind of um virtual connection uh, much more i think
0: yeah and it's not even just like your typical geek who's using quirk which will be quirk chat hopefully by the time that this podcast has aired <laughs> but um because we are in the process of changing the name but it's also um the talent that would typically be at comic conventions uh, so you have uh people like warner brothers and uh, their partner DC Comics, as well as HBO and Marvel, like they typically go to these conventions to kind of build community around a show that's coming out or a movie that's coming out. So they'll bring the voice actors out to basically um, just bring that camaraderie and bring that excitement to the moment. And now that's gone. So people are able to actually use Quirk Chat to uh, just show their face and kind of promote themselves. For example, we were able to work with Lovecraft Country, which was a show on HBO. We did a lot of experimental marketing with Lovecraft and it turned out great. So um, it's just really cool to see who all uses Quirktastic.
1: That's terrific. Um, so with the time we have left, I want to explore a little bit, you know, some of the things you mentioned about being part of accelerators. So you were in Digital Undivided and I know you've mentioned before. Snapchat and WeFunder, maybe tell us a little bit about through those experiences as a Black woman founder. Have there things where you've been given advantages, or things where you've been given more more challenges in the in that respect? Being essentially as a as a Black woman founder throughout those programs in the context of being parts of cohorts with other founders.
0: Yeah. So I'll start with Digital Undivided. Um, And for those who don't know, it's actually geared towards Black and Latinx founders, uh, Black and Latinx women founders. Um, It was started by Catherine Finney, who um, is an amazing entrepreneur turned founder of Digital Undivided. And that was actually my first, (laughs) my first intro into anything startup. Like I've never worked at a startup at that point. I did not know anything about investing. Like I remember one of my first questions like, well, like, when do I pay them back if they invest, like, do I have to do it next year? Like, what, like, how does, this, <laughs> how does this work out? So I didn't know, I had no idea what a series A to a series D was when I started. So I considered those months kind of my foundation. And I am actually really glad that I was able to have those experiences and those learning moments with other founders who looked like me. Um, As as silly as that sounds, like I've worked in science uh, most of my life, so I remember being in classes to where I was like, I don't like, I'm one of the only black women here. I don't want to ask a stupid question. Um, I don't want people to look at me like, oh, I don't deserve to be here. Because of course, I mean, I'm not going to go into it, but we know like all the rumors of like, oh, black people affirmative action when it comes to medical schools and things like that. And I was like, I am not going to like play into that. But with Digital Undivided being other black and Latinx women. I felt like I could ask the the stupid questions, and I I think that it actually, like, helped me out in the long run. Um, But then moving forward, I went to the WeFunder XX program, which uh, was in San Francisco, and the way that it was laid out, so digital and divided was very much structured, because it was an incubator, it's foundational, but then I moved forward to the WeFunder program, and with that program, it was basically, like, almost like on the the level of an accelerator of like, I'm just going to put you all together. We're going to do these meetings where these really cool people who have run businesses come and we all have dinner together. And then during the day, you kind of do your thing. But with that experience, I also lived in a hacker house, uh, which was my first experience in San Francisco. Like I remember arriving from North Carolina to San Francisco in the middle of the night never, like only being to California I think once before in my life and then having to take my suitcase up into this attic and sleep on a cot for like three months. With, oh my. Yeah, and it was- Was
1: it in the city itself?
0: Oh yeah, I was in Noe Valley, which is like very adjacent to like the Mission area. Yeah, so that's where I live. The Noe Valley is definitely more like suburban, like a lot of women with strollers and stuff like that. So I was like, where am I? <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was an interesting experience. That was one where I was the only black person. I was the only person who was from the South who didn't go to a so-called good school, Ivy League school or things like that. Everyone else went to like Stanford or Berkeley or um, whatever the great colleges are in Canada. That was probably the most culture shock that I had. And then I think by the time I got to Snapchat, I was kind of used to the game because this was maybe like, A year later, I was used to it, um, but it was in LA, which adds like a whole nother element of things.
1: So it sounds like it was good for you that you had digital undivided first and got some wind in your sails and some confidence. And like you said, learning about these things, which most of the world doesn't know about. Right. I mean, Series A and convertible notes and and those kinds of things. Just it's not the jargon that the average person learns or even the college student. Right. So um, so it sounds like that was a great Um, opportunity for you to sort of get up that learning curve quickly.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely consider it like an MBA on steroids when I think of it. It's like, all right, all the things that you actually need to know for a startup, like this is kind of how it works. This is how investors talk. Of course, it was like all that they could cram into a few months. So not all inclusive, but at least I had like the really good start of like, you should read Bradfeld's books, like you should read venture deals. like you should do all these other things that I would have never known to do. and then moving on to the Wefunder xX program, I think that kind of introduced me more into the people who were actually like in the field making the differences. like I was able to to meet the people who um were at Y Combinator and I learned about Y Combinator as well as like people who worked at Google, like the founders of Airbnb and Caviar, which was startup at the time. And um, just learning about people in the industry gave a different perspective.
1: That's a great arc for sure to go through those experiences. So we like to finish up with this one question. If you could go back to the, let's say the 2014 version of B-Law and give that version of yourself, advice about what to look for, what to do or not do to get to where you are today or beyond where you are today, What, what what's one piece of advice you would give that B-law?
0: That's such a good question. I would say, and I, I, I love this just because I've actually thought about this, like what would I tell myself if I could do it over again? Because I've definitely made some mistakes. I've spent money that I... Didn't need to spend simply because I, I wanted to figure out a way to um, do it the most correct or um, use people who I thought knew things better than I did. And I think the biggest advice I would tell myself is it's going to look different for you than it is going to look for some of these people who kind of grew up in the environment. And that's okay. And you don't have to emulate them, you can figure out what works best for you and your company at the moment because i think I, I spent so many especially like the first year of building quirktastic of like trying to figure out the exact right way to do things like i definitely threw things out there like even the the current version of the app that's in the app store is like a version that i threw out because of covid Of just like all right we want to test out these new features let's just get them out there we'll clean it up later i'm definitely like an experimenter But there's also a part of me that's like, oh, like there's always something that like I I must be missing something or something that I don't know. And it's like, no one really knows what they're doing. Like, you know, like a general amount, but it's not going to look the same for everyone. And I spent so much time kind of like getting mentorship. And I feel like at this point, like I'm very over-mentored and underfunded. Like, and I feel like that's the story for a lot of Black founders, especially Black women founders. It's like, The first thing people want to do is mentor us. And I'm like, dude, I've been mentored by like literally 100 people. And they all say completely different things. Like I appreciate it. And it's definitely shaped me. But like, I'm good. So I would tell myself, have confidence. And um, just know that even if it looks different than what other people say that it should look like, it's fine.
1: I love that. And especially this idea of comparison in You know, just knowing that your journey is going to be unique and having confidence. And you're totally right that like most people don't know what they're doing. And the idea of the marketplace telling them ultimately is the answer. And some people get that answer sooner than later, but it's not because they were brilliant. So uh, for our listeners out there who are aspiring entrepreneurs or people who might want to work with you, tell us how can we be helpful to Quirktastic right now?
0: Oh, thanks for asking, uh, so I mentioned WeFunder that we were a part of their XX program. But for those who don't know what WeFunder is, it's actually a crowdfunding investment platform to where you can invest as little as $100 into any company that has campaigned on there. And quirktastic we actually just launched our campaign about 10 days ago to the public. And uh, we're still at the beginning stages. We've raised at the point of this interview about 30 k Um, But we do have a larger goal. So if you would like to uh, support Quirktastic, we would love to have you as an investor, even for $100 point or more. We have some pretty cool perks. (laughs) So I would love for you to just at least check out our campaign. And if you're not able to um, invest, definitely tell someone to where you feel like this is uh, up their alley.
1: Nice. And um, you want to give us URLs or social handles, either for the campaign or for Quirktastic in general?
0: Yes. Yeah, so the WeFunder is wefunder.com slash quirktastic and quirk as in quirky and then tastic like fantastic, quirktastic. <laughs> and then on all other uh, social media, since we are rebranding, you can find us at Quirk Chat.
1: Awesome. Uh, well, B, this has been an awesome conversation. I wish we could go on and on and on. Yes. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for taking the time and, uh, and sharing your great thoughts and your story.
0: No, this has been so great and a very holistic interview. So thanks so much for having me.
1: We'd like to thank our guest, B. Law, and our sponsor, Founders Live. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to. That's listen T-O. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. This podcast was produced by Dan Quijana. Editing and production by Georgia Garcia Moreno. Albert Holguin, and Caitlin Limber. Social media and other promotion by Umama Marzouk and Anisha Barnett. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.